going to wear jeans because I'm going to seem relatable and cool. <laughs> and it was with all these teenagers. I was like, I want them to think I'm laid back. It took me about an hour to get dressed. I was like, oh. how do I wear jeans? I just want to wear a tutu. This is horrible. I only realised halfway through, I was like, I've never, I've never <laughs> seen you wear jeans ever, yeah. ever, ever. Hello and welcome to the Feminists Don't Wear Pink podcast based on the book, Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies. I'm your host, Scarlett Curtis. This episode was recorded live in Dublin, where I had the honour of interviewing former Feminist Don't Wear Pink guest Saoirse Ronan and the incredible Sinead Burke in front of an audience of Irish women. In case you can't tell by my accent, I am in fact a quarter Irish, and it's something I'm fiercely proud of, mostly because some of my favourite women in the world are Irish too. Sinead Burke is a teacher, writer, broadcaster, fashion admirer and advocate for disability and design. She is an activist for an amazing charity called the Little People of Ireland, a recipient of the Vera Foster Medal from the Marino Institute of Education and an ambassador for countless other charities. She is also a contributing editor at Vogue, no big deal, a speaker at TED and the World Economic Forum, and four days before we recorded this podcast, she became the first little person to walk on the red carpet at the Met Gala. Our other guest, Saoirse Ronan, is a thrice Oscar-nominated, four-time BAFTA-nominated, Golden Globe-winning Irish actress. She is a contributor in Feminists Don't Wear Pink, an ambassador for the Irish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, a bold supporter of the Repeal the Eighth campaign and has been labelled by the New York Times as one of the most formidable actors in movies today, which, if you've ever seen her hungover or in a bad mood, is most definitely true. At 25 years old, she has crafted a career by playing strong, unusual women on screen, and she was also the first person in the world who made me believe in myself as a friend. This show truly felt like a magical night, and I really hope that comes across in this episode. This year has been an incredible year for Irish feminism. The campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment and legalise abortion in Ireland was largely led by young women and grassroots activists, and its eventual success was hugely down to the incredible upsurge of feminist activism that is happening all over Ireland right now. It's an amazing and powerful time to be an Irish woman and it was an amazing day to interview two Irish women in Dublin. Um, Welcome to the stage, Saoirse and Sinead. I was was telling my dad I was a bit nervous about the show tonight and he was like, you know what, it's going to be a great show and do you know why? I was like, no, why? Let Hobie, he gave me some advice and he goes, you're the three S's. That doesn't mean it's going to be a good show. <laughs> it does. Just our names. Absolutely. Does. Um, okay. Now, to begin with, I wouldn't Thank normally you. begin this way, but I wanted to start by talking about fashion because both of you are quite literally just off the pink carpet and probably still a bit hungover. <laughs> I don't. Drink. These are my questions. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I'm just tired. How was it? Did you meet Kim Kardashian? This is really nice. And how do you feel? That has to be done to me. Okay, one second. refreshment. Brief reprieve. I'll ask my question. Let's just take one second. I hope um, nobody needs to go to the loo. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when listening to the podcast. Okay, break. Um, okay, these are my three questions. How was it? Did you meet Kim Kardashian? And how do you feel about the feminist politics of women dressing up in crazy costumes and parading down a pink carpet? 
Would you like to go first? <laughs> I, I feel like I didn't see anyone's outfit because I think I got there before everyone else except Lady Gaga and Anna Winter. Um, but I did see Kim Kardashian's outfit on the internet the next day and it was it was incredible. I like it was the shape yeah. was just like nothing I've ever seen before. Um, and the feminist what politics? I, what I do, yeah, <laughs> and on to that. What I do like actually about the Met is that men and women both equally look mental at mm. it. And um, <laughs> everybody sort of yeah. like pushes themselves out of their comfort zone. So it's because there's so many events, and we were talking about this earlier, where as a girl you do feel like you're sort of gone into the lion's den a little bit when you know you're going to be compared and your outfit's going to be compared to other people um whereas with the met everyone sort of looks equally outrageous so yeah. i think it's it is quite yeah. amazing for that i think it was my first time uh, to be at the met and even to be saying that sentence a friend of mine posted on facebook to say that you know the first time i wrote about the met on my fashion blog was maybe about six years ago and to see the distance in between then and now is so surreal I suppose when I was first invited by Gucci to attend the Met, we'd had a conversation, not just about the theme, but also about accessibility. The Met is a beautiful venue, but the symbol of the Met Gala in and of itself is a symbol for inaccessibility. Yeah. And whilst I am physically able to do the stairs, or have learned recently, it's how do we push that further. So I met with the team's um, accessibility team within the Met itself. I met with the Vogue Special Projects team, not only to see what they could do for me and my own access needs within that night, but also how we could propel that further, be it language interpreters, be it looking at different accessible entrances. And the theme of camp, I mean, Susan Sontag's essay mm. is absolutely extraordinary. Mm. And if you haven't read it, which is Notes on Camp, which is where the theme came from, I really would recommend that you do. And she talks about how if you have to describe something as camp, it is not it. But for me, camp has always been this safe space where people who have ever felt in any way different get to revel and exist mm. within. But how it can be conceived and construed to others, it's not that far from circuses or freak shows. And I didn't want my physical appearance at that red carpet to be construed as anything other than the fact that I deserved to be there, if that makes sense. So the outfit that I wore was a collaborative process between me and the amazing team at Gucci and making sure that whatever I wore was powerful. And on the note of Kim, um, so Kim and I, regardless, <laughs> more importantly, ridiculous sentence, but... Uh, <laughs> Ridiculous sentence. No, further ridiculous sentence. Kim and I shared a magazine cover last year, so we know each other slightly, and got to talk to her. I know. Yeah, uh, actually, actually, me too. So um, yeah, I was. Yeah, and I've done that same, many same, times. Same, same, yeah. same. Um, I thought she looked uh, incredible, yeah. and the corset that she wore. There's a getting ready video with her with the Met that yeah, she I love wore, that. but. I think it's really difficult and I think a theme like camp allowed us to explore beauty beyond lots of different definitions. On Vogue.com there's this really interesting sequence of photographs of everybody whose first time it was this year at the Met oh, and wow. there is an increasing amount of diversity that exists within those 59 people than there is within kind of those who've been going since time immemorial. So I think there is progress and change happening but we just need to continue to push it forward. It's incredible. I absolutely love that. And I think you're so right, and for me, one of the most powerful expressions of the theme was seeing you there, whereas I think sometimes seeing... We'll pretend I wasn't yeah. nervous. <laughs> you looked incredible. Uh, this ties to that, but you've very much chosen to change the fashion industry from the inside, and I think a problem that a lot of feminists 
come into contact with and something I think about is a lot is do we, whenever we come into contact with these systems that are very patriarchal, do we try and change them from the inside out and kind of get in there and then try and make changes we need? Or do we attack and boycott the system from the outside? And I'm mostly just because I hate confrontation. I'm normally one to try and change it from the inside. And I've also seen in my own experience in activism that often that gets more work done. But a lot of people do criticize that and say, you know, why are you even endorsing these things? Um, I think I was a good two shoes in school and that's just why I like doing it. I hate breaking rules, but I'm going to pretend it's like a moral thing. Um, but I'm really interested in why you, when looking at the fashion industry and how inaccessible it is, why you chose to make change by working with the designers and getting in there rather than kind of criticizing it from the outside, which is what I think a lot of people do. So my background is in education. I started my career as a primary school teacher here, mm -hmm. actually not too far from here. And for as long as I can remember, I thought that that would be my career trajectory for 65. Well, actually, I'm a millennial, so probably 80 years before I retire. <laughs> um, and it was completely accidental in so many ways. I had an enormous interest in fashion because I felt left out. Mm. I have brothers and sisters mm. who are interested in clothes and what they wear, but they don't care about the system. So mm. my way in was through education. I used to sit and read everything that I could. And I used to sit around my family dining room table and say to my parents, what do you think Adidas are going to do? <laughs> and they'd be like, about what, Chanel? Like, oh, good question. So here's the thing, right? So the Stan Smith, Phoebe Philo has wore it on the runway after she takes her bow every season. But she's just left, and they've replaced her with Hedy Slaman. Not the greatest choice first season, but proved himself the second. So what are they going to do to maintain that marketing campaign? Because Nike have just taken Colin Kaepernick. Sales went down 3%. <laughs> oh, of course, Adidas are going to collaborate with Stella McCartney and make a vegan Stan Smith and maintain that market. And then Beyonce. And so I understood, I understood the power of fashion as a global industry to step forward because other industries would take note. Mm -hmm. And I think I spent so long from writing a blog, understanding who the key power players were, that I actually see my role as like a facilitator and an educator. And within these rooms, whether it is meeting with LVMH, with Kering, with creative directors, with CEOs, making them think broadly and more differently. And my pinpoint in terms of my education is not about just creating clothes for me. Like, it's lovely, but that's not the solution. And it's about realizing that, you know, what I need is also what you need. Like, we're wearing dresses today. You know a dress is designed by a man because a woman can neither get in nor out of it <laughs> independently because it was designed in a time when women had husbands or domestic help. And yet, have we have never changed it. Arms, so I'm quite good at that. <laughs> We're welcome to Ireland at any time. <laughs> but it's how do we think about this design? And you know, what would work for me as a disabled woman is having a zip on the side or having not a zip at all. And it's about using this as a case study to talk broadly. So it's also an opportunity I never thought I'd have. And I'm really not sure how long this will last. But I'm in, an op I'm in spaces and rooms now where I have an opportunity to bring other people mm. with me and to provoke questions from people I've admired forever. It's amazing, and I think something I find so incredible about what you do, I was in a wheelchair between the ages of 14 and 17, which is a fraction of my life compared to, obviously, so many people with disabilities, but I was never really that interested in fashion before. It was kind of, you know, I just wanted to like look cute and boys to fancy me, and it was actually only when I had that time when I felt so betrayed by my body and I felt so kind of confused about what was going on that I 
became obsessed with using fashion and using style to express the parts of me that I felt I wasn't able to express in other ways. And I actually think fashion can be a massive tool for anyone that is marginalised in any way, whether that's something as simple as just being a woman or a person of colour or anything. And yet it's made for people that aren't, or I think it's actually more useful for anyone that has something to say that can say it by their clothes. I, I love fashion. It is a deeply problematic industry. Yes. And I'm not blinkered to that either. You know, it has enormous impact on the environment. We need to be more sustainable in our practices. We need to even from a domestic perspective ensure that you know it's okay to wear the same outfit on Instagram mm. more than once like really that is you don't need a new outfit every time you post a selfie mm. and accepting that as a culture even among younger generations realizing you know that at the same time we can't protect the environment if we're not protecting the people who make our clothes mm. if we're not protecting the people who wear our clothes we need to broaden the definition and the spectrum of beauty but if fashion can and does do this Technology will follow, yeah. mm. television, theatre, mm. film, Hollywood yeah. will follow, mm. because fashion is intrinsic to everything. And I, I, I say this line all the time, but you know, if we all left this theatre today naked, there's a police station not too far <laughs> from here that would arrest us all because we all have to wear clothes. Yeah. Mm. And it's Amazing. the only one that like, it touches our skin. It, it has to make mm. a difference. And for that reason alone, because we all interact with it, it has a responsibility to do better. And it is important, even yeah. if we try and pretend it's just for girls. Um, Sash, I know fashion has been a kind of interestingly big part of your life and career for the past few years. And I admire the way that you have really used fashion, not just to look pretty or sexy, although there's nothing wrong with that, but I think that is something a lot of actresses can be kind of pushed into that maybe mm. they're not as comfortable with. But you've really used it to convey a message and tell people who you are. When did you first become interested in using clothes as part of your work? Um, <clears throat> through Elizabeth Salzman, who um, is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant stylist that I work with. And I've been working with her for the last like three years. And I think, and I still wouldn't say I'm like a fashionista. I, d I'm, I don't, yeah. I didn't know what you were talking about there with the animals. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> any of those. <laughs> yeah, great, I was taking notes. Um, but I really, you know, I have friends who are so passionate about fashion um, and know everything and everyone mm. in that world. And I wouldn't say I do. Like I've met, I've been lucky enough to meet designers who we both know like Alessandro and lovely people like that um, and I sort of have gotten to know them a little bit on a personal level but um, for me like clothes have always been important not in a sort of brand sense or like I have to wear a certain thing because we lived in the country and everyone I remember one of my friend's sisters uh, was wearing something once and someone said oh that's lovely where did you get that and she said I got it out of a bag because <laughs> we'd all just like put our old clothes in a bin bag and go I and the parents would be like so do you much. want these now <laughs> so she'd just wear what I wore like three years before like I said to my mom when I was really really young she brought me into a shop and I think my grandmother was with us and wanted to get me this dress that had like puffy sleeves on it. And I said, I don't like it, it's too pretty full. Like I was never into anything like that, but I sort of feel like that maybe I sort of 
that was related to being weak in a way. Yeah. And I think that's something like the work that Scar is doing and the way Scar looks and the stuff that she says is so important because Scar is a girly girl and has pink hair and does a wonderful job on her makeup every we day. Did but an she's event. Like, we did an event earlier yeah. and I was like, I'm going to wear jeans because I'm going to seem relatable and jeans. cool. <laughs> and it was with all these teenage ones. I was like, I want them to think I'm laid back. It took me about an hour to get dressed. I was like, oh. how do I wear jeans? I just want to wear a tutu. I only realised halfway through, I was like, I've never, I've never <laughs> seen you wear jeans ever, yeah. ever, ever. Um, but yeah, but I think what, what Elizabeth has done for me is that, you know, so often myself, Sinead, and Scar, and I'm sure a lot of people in this room are just, whether it's an office party or a meeting or a premiere or a TED talk or something like that, you're in a scenario where you feel maybe, you know, nervous or insecure or a bit out of your depth. And actually clothes can say so much about you if you want them to, or not at all. Um, and Elizabeth has sort of allowed me to see them, like she always says like, it's not a serious thing. Mm. Fashion is not a serious thing, it should be fun. It does have a massive sort of um, influence on the way we dress, I mean, the reason why, for any of us that shop in H&M and Zara, the reason why we dress like that is because there's been a handful of designers that have designed those clothes yeah. at a, much more expensive price. Um, so yeah, so it sort of helped me to appreciate it more, I think, and it has, one of the things that it's helped me with has sort of been to like embrace my femininity and to like enjoy dressing in, you know, sexy clothes every now and again and not be worried about, you know, showing a bit of skin if I want to and I can do that and that's sort of my choice or it's also my choice to wear jeans and a jumper if yeah. I want to. That can so. be used as armour or even to give you exactly. confidence. Like yeah. Exactly as you are saying, on those moments, if it is a premiere or a big night, if you yeah. step into something that you feel like gives you power, yeah. all of a sudden you have the presence by which to mm. achieve whatever yeah. it is you want to do. And it's like something, like I don't know about you, but the outfits that I feel at my strongest in are ones that I feel, this sounds so like the, but um, I felt like I couldn't say wanky for a minute, but I can, because <laughs> Grace definitely said it like 10 times. Um, but one of the things that it can do is sort of like take the essence of you and sort of yeah. accentuate it. And the clothes that I've felt most comfortable in on a red carpet or whatever are ones that feel like me, but yeah. aren't necessarily things I'd wear in my daily life. So. The greatest gift it gives me is that it explains me, my personality, often my age and my maturity to strangers in a way that I don't have to. That if I walk past you in the street wearing this dress, you probably have an assumption that I'm not four years old, that I am a little person. And that removes so much of the vulnerability mm. that I might have mm. to like explicate myself again and again yeah. who I am. Whereas, you know, if I'm wearing a dress like this, you're like, oh, interesting, tie-dye on a Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> I would think the most fashionable human I've ever seen in my life. No, I think you're so right about armour. I used to wear floor-length pink tutus to every hospital appointment, every hospital appointment I ever went to, and I think everyone thought I was mad. But it was the only thing that made me feel kind of powerful and strong, and like I could face these situations that I was absolutely terrified about. Mm -hmm. And also, hospital gowns are disgusting, so I was like, <laughs> I'm going to keep this on as long as I can. <laughs> um, okay, moving on to feminism. Although I could talk about clothes all night. <laughs> um, Sinead, you've been an activist since a really young age on so many different issues. 
were you always a feminist? Did you always define that way? And how today does feminism fit into the other activist work that you do? Because I think sometimes with all these issues, the feminist movement hasn't been great in the past about being intersectional and about including everyone. Um, and I'm just wondering how you kind of feel you fit into that. I went to an all-girls school for primary school and okay. secondary school, but I don't ever tangibly remember the rhetoric of feminism being around the corridors or being something that we prize or, or cherish. And in terms of like my definition of feminism, to, to take it from Chimamanda, it's you know it's the social, political, economic equality of, of people. And I say people instead of sexes. And it's making sure, as you said, that it is intersectional because so often, even within corporate spaces, if we talk about equality, we talk about men and women. And even within that binary, we usually mean white men, white women, cisgendered, straight, non-disabled, yeah. settled. And it's trying to think as broadly about that as possible because that notion of equality, the access to each of those touch points is so different mm -hmm. depending on your own circumstance. It's something I'm very proud to say that I am and have been for a long time, but my advocacy began thanks to, to my parents and to my family. You mentioned Little People of Ireland in your introduction. Thank you so much. My parents founded that organization in 1997 and they founded it in a time before the internet. It didn't exist once, you know that, right? <laughs> um, and they founded it because they had information which they could share and resources which they could give people to, to give confidence because their family looked like ours. And my advocacy started because parents were coming to my parents and saying, my child who's little is having a tough time in the playground. The teacher doesn't really know what to say. The principal doesn't know what to say. I don't really want to step in and speak for my child. Is there anything you can think of? And in their infinite wisdom, my parents were like, well, Sinead's a teacher. And I went up and down the country on buses and trains and speaking to children about the value of being different and the importance of it. And I never sat down one day and was like, okay, well, I'm gonna start being an advocate and being an <laughs> activist and I'm going to attempt to have difficult conversations with interesting people. It just happened organically due to necessity. And for me, it's always about trying to think, okay, well, how can I bring other people along with me? And whether that's making sure that a venue is accessible, whether that's making sure that there are tickets allocated for different types of people, or whether it's thinking about who gets to exist within different rooms and whose voices are we hearing. It's a constant monologue that I just try to hone and develop. Thank you. You're amazing, <laughs> yeah. And I think you're so right. I kind of tend to think of feminism as like our fight against the patriarchy and the patriarchy is the same, the same system that mm -hmm. is holding women back, is holding people of colour back, is holding disabled yeah. people back, is holding trans people back, it's holding LGBTQ people back, it's holding everyone back. So it, it's so kind of wrong that we haven't all joined our fights together in the past. Yeah. And I actually think, I sometimes think the reason we haven't is because of those very systems of patriarchy that kind of tr tell us that we all need to fight on our own instead of mm. joining together and becoming this amazing army. Yeah. Um, Sasha, you are in an industry where famously and kind of a lot talked about recently, uh, women don't always get the strongest or most complicated or best roles, especially young women. Uh, and yeah, I kind of think your whole career, definitely since Atonement, you've consistently played what I would argue and have always argued are very feminist, feminist girls and women. 
When did you find your feminism and do you feel it informs the people you choose to play? Yes, I think it always has done, but mm. I didn't realise that that's what it was. And it probably wasn't until I met you <laughs> um, about four years ago that I realised that that was that was how I could identify the thing that had sort of been motivating me mm. since I, even before I started work, just as a, just as a kid, I think I, I was very lucky that I had a lot of very strong Irish women around me who um, didn't take any shit <laughs> and were independent. And, and I do think that comes from, you know, generations before and even some women now that, um, are sort of just like kept at home. I think that's starting to change now, but there's definitely a fire that has come out of that and this sort of fight. Mm -hmm. And so I think I grew up with women who felt so strongly about that and really like passed that on to, to their girls. Um, and yeah, and so, you know, f from the moment I started acting, I think I was very lucky that like, because of the people around me, I, I valued myself and I did have quite a strong sense of self always. Um, my mom has that too. My Auntie Marigra has that as well. Like the people around me have that. Um, so that was what I wanted and needed and just naturally became. Um, and so the work hopefully reflected that and still mm. reflects that because also just for my own head I don't just want to play someone that's the girlfriend to someone else mm -hmm. or the sister to someone else or even sometimes the daughter if there's nothing interesting to do yeah. within that role so it was totally selfish really and it was just because <laughs> I didn't want to get bored but um but I realized later on that um that that was a sort of feminist way of, yeah. of thinking. And I do think, because like when I was trying to figure out what I was going to write for the book, I was like, oh my God, there's so many people that are going to be write so many amazing things. And I thought, I like lists, so I'll write a list. And one of the things that I thought about was that like when I was in primary school, we were in this mixed school, there was like 50 of us and it was boys and girls and there was four classes per classroom. We had two classrooms in this tiny, tiny little school and it was absolutely the best education in being like a fully formed person ever because we all played sports together. You had kids as young as five, you know, playing on the same team as a, like me, if I was five, I was playing with a 12 year old boy in football or basketball and it was brilliant because we worked together because mm. we had to you know and it was a very sort of healthy um competitiveness and i i think that has really informed my feminism an awful lot as well very very good yeah um so i am very obsessed with stats and both, <laughs> as her dad. Yeah. Uh, and both fashion and film have some pretty major gender equality issues. And yeah, what, so I'm very bad at confrontation. And if people try and argue with me about feminism or saying we don't need it, I tend to just like cry and start <laughs> talking about 
you know, FGM like, in a really <laughs> weird way. Um, and so what I do now is I have a, and this is a really good piece of advice, I think, is I have a note in my phone which just has all these stats about gender equality. Mm, and nice. I'm really fun at parties, guys. I just <laughs> um, And I start listing them. But it's a good way because no one can really argue with a stat because it's true. Um, so I have some here. 80 <laughs> I brought my stats. Yeah. <laughs> just to kind of call out the industries yeah, you guys are in. Um, 85% of graduates from fashion school are women, and yet only 14% of leading women's wear brands are run by a female CEO. It's pretty common knowledge that only five women in history have been nominated for the Oscar for Best Director, but on top of that, these were all new ones for me to add to my list. 83% uh, of films have no female writers, 96% have no female cinematographers, and more than 90% of major studio films have no female assistants on set, including gaffers, key grips, and supervising senators. Um, this is for both of you. It can seem pretty overwhelming to start tackling things like that, but if you could make one change in either of your industries to address gender equality kind of actively, what would it be? Do you want to go first? I don't mind. Like go, go for it. Oh, thanks. Not to put you on the spot. No problem. Uh, give us your fashion stat again. How many percent of graduates? 85% of graduates, 14% of CEOs. At the minimum. No. The, it's really interesting to look at the dynamics of a fashion house, particularly within the luxury industry. So the fashion industry is owned by four companies but really kind of two. It's owned by LVMH and Kering. LVMH own most of France, Kering own most of Italy. And they are run by, by mostly men. And I think there are so many questions. Institutionally and the patriarchy are definitely challenges to creating solutions, but I think we can make a difference in the everyday, and this sounds trite. One of the best things that I did for myself two years ago was turned off the voice in my head. I don't know about you, but I used to say things to myself that my worst enemy wouldn't say to myself. And I think there are so many opportunities for leadership or opportunities for growth that we deny ourselves as people because we think we're not deserving, we're not good enough, we're not smart enough. There's another statistic for you, Scarlett. If, there is a, yeah. if there's a job application, if there's 10 criteria on it, if a woman can complete nine of them, she won't apply because she thinks she's not qualified. If a man can do one, he'll be like, ah, what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> and that's genuine. So how do we build the confidence of women? And I say that women, like intersectionally or non-binary people, how do we build people's confidence? Some of that is visibility. So often there haven't been women in these rooms at these tables by which conversations can be brought up, be it childcare, be it wage gap, be it health services and health insurances or whatever, or accessibility or whatever may be needed. And I think that's gonna take long to change, but I wanna see the confidence of those graduates who are graduating from NCAD, from LSAD here in Ireland, from DIT, and feeling like you need to take up power, but the change also has to come up from the top. There's been recent changes in Italy in particular due to the rightful backlash about the blackface campaigns, both in Prada and in Gucci. And what they've done is they've built scholarships and they've built education programs, mostly in the United States and in Europe and in Asia, to develop and foster young talent to bring them into the companies. But what we need is for that progress not to be reactionary. 
What we need is for that progress to be sustainable and implemented so that every year we have new recruits of all different backgrounds coming into these large organisations because otherwise the system is just going to continue to repeat itself and repeat mm -hmm. itself. That's some of the work that I'm trying to do. There are lots of people trying to do this. But I think, I don't know about you, but my best and worst quality is that I'm fiercely ambitious. A year ago I was asked in an interview, a year ago this week I was asked in an interview, what was my dream what did I want to do? And nobody else in my family knows this, but everybody now, thanks to the podcast. Um, <laughs> and I said in that interview, I want to go to the Met Gala, because it's mm. a symbol. I kind of thought you were going to go, I want to sit on stage with Saoirse Ronan. <laughs> well, we did that in December, but no, with you, Scarlett, yes. Me, that was her dream a year ago. <laughs> Not now. And that sounds so simple, and I have lots of different dreams, but so often we are afraid to dream and then we are afraid to realize that dream because so often we're like, ah, yeah, but what about, or for not me, or whatever. Like, try. What is the worst that can happen? That it, it doesn't work out, that you fail. What, whatever the results are, you're gonna learn something from it and it's gonna be a part of you and who you become. And my biggest advice would be like, think you're the shit because everybody mm -hmm. else does. Yeah. Embrace it. because I think so often confidence and talk about confidence can be kind of delegated to like self-help or you know motivational posters and we don't take it seriously as a tool for change and a tool for activism mm. and it is I, there are so many women in my life who the thing that holds them back as well as systems and everything but the main thing that holds them back is confidence and having confidence in yourself is an act of feminism. So much can be solved by um, giving more attention to schools yeah. and education in schools and starting young and allowing children to be in a very sort of nurturing, mm. inclusive environment where they do feel like they're enough. Because that's when, they are your formative years. There's any of the issues that any of us have probably who are in the room right now were probably formed when we were like yeah. five to ten or something. So it's such an important time for a person and for a citizen. Um, and as I said, like I think that's had a massive impact on me. And I know with film, like Tim Bevan and Barbara mm -hmm. Broccoli, they have this incredible um, school that's just started over in the UK. And people from all backgrounds different ethnicities are brought into the school and they're trained for about two or three years in film and it means that when everyone leaves they're equally sort of um ready to go um because there is such an imbalance on film sets so um yeah i would say schools and are just to add one thing. thing when there is a film where Saoirse Ronan and Margot Robbie are in the lead and there's a female director pay your eight euro and go see it. Because the way things change is if films like that are profitable. The way, it's true though. It's true. It's because true. so often we are so loud and vocal when things are wrong and we rarely step up and be vocal or we rarely financially support. Yeah. And I don't yeah. mean to, for you to spend in excess, but if you see things that are a step positively in that direction, mm. celebrate them. Because and there are people listening. Because that's how people respond. People yeah. pay attention yeah. to money. And buy loads of popcorn as well. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I go to the cinema and I don't go see a movie, I just buy popcorn. Which I wouldn't encourage you to do. <laughs> <laughs> Even if, if you, you don't film want to see the film, film but you kind of agree with its morals, buy the ticket, buy the popcorn and then just leave. And then just leave. <laughs> <laughs> Mary Queen of Scots was really long. It's really good. It was really so long. long. <laughs> 
much history. <laughs> it was great, guys. I cried loads. It. it was a feminist masterpiece. <laughs> uh, Sasha, I feel like the last year has finally proved to the world that Irish women are a force to be reckoned with and yes. how powerful they can be. So the victory, honestly, the victory of the repeal campaign mm. was one of the most beautiful, important moments in modern feminist history, and I think it should make every single person in this room proud. What do you think it is about Irish women that makes them so uniquely powerful? Um, I, I do, I mean, I said this before, but I do think we've got this fire in us. I think just Irish people in general are sort of fighters, and whether you're quiet or you're loud, there's this spirit that we have that has just not gone away. Mm. No matter how many times, you know, bigger bullies in the schoolyard have come along and tried to sort of knock it out of us, it has not gone away. Um, and that's something that we've all just, it's a spirit that we've sort of, grown up with and I also think people just got fed up they just got fed mm. up of like either being in a school or living your life as a woman and being told by um the church basically that you have to be and live in a certain way we got bored of it and we got sick of it and um I think we're living in an age now where people are actually so sort of strongly encouraged to express themselves whether it's through social media or um, just when you're with your friends. So I think open conversations are something that's sort of like, it's supported now in a way yeah. that it wasn't maybe for our parents or our grandparents, you know? Yeah. Do you um, remember this time last year? <laughs> we weren't sure. We weren't sure. And everybody who had a microphone told us it was gonna be no. I was born in 1990 when Mary Robinson became president and she said that the women of Ireland didn't just rock the cradle, they rocked the system. And it was an echo of that. And it wasn't just women, but it was so many people who stood outside of themselves and said, this is bigger than me. And so many people who didn't agree with abortion. It wasn't for them, but they felt it wasn't a choice that they should make for other people. Mm. And I could not be more proud of the so many people. And there's still work to be done. We haven't finished that fight, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I hope you'll continue to fight for the six counties. I also think, for me, I was living in New York when the vote happened here, and being in that country over the last four years and seeing men in power slowly strip away the rights of women to have agency over their own bodies, to make their own decisions, to feel safe with their partners in their lives, seeing that happen and then seeing this country defy everything it was built on in its history to allow women to be themselves was the most kind of, I was feeling very lost with the world <laughs> in America and it made me just want to move here and never go back to New York. You're welcome. Um, yeah, <laughs> well, I'm here guys forever. I am actually really scared of flying so maybe I won't even make it. <laughs> um, we have a boat, you're leave. Yeah. <laughs> uh, We're going to go to audience questions in a minute because I feel like you guys will have much better questions than me. But Sinead, I wanted to ask you something that I feel is very important. I kind of came to feminism through disability, I didn't even, you know, I'm a white middle-class girl, I barely thought women had any problems before, and then suddenly I was flung into this situation where I was 
treated very badly, abused very badly, and was kind of physically couldn't do the things I'd been able to do before. And, you know, I now have been able-bodied and out of pain for the last few years. And even now, I sometimes find myself not thinking about things that I would have thought about seven years ago, not taking into account people that I would have been more aware of. And you feel it slipping away, and that's not out of malice, but I think a lot of white, able-bodied, privileged women who call themselves feminists still don't include everyone in the way that we should. What do you wish people knew about disabled women and the intersections between all of our fights for discrimination? What do you wish you could say to people to make... Yeah, what do you wish you could say? I suppose I have to start by saying, you know, I have dwarfism, I'm a little person, yeah. and I would never attempt to speak from anybody but myself. Yeah. And disability is, is a spectrum. There is visible, there is invisible, and it's being really cognizant of the fact that within that there are needs that are so variant. One of the biggest things that I would love to change is the notion of listed buildings. The idea that we put architecture over people in 2019 <coughs> is a disgrace. And I think we have to find a way to look at accessibility within a lens of beauty. We can add to a beautiful Georgian building around the corner from here and make it possible that everybody who is a citizen in the society gets to enter it in a way with dignity. We put men on the moon and we can't make a building accessible. I mean, it just doesn't make sense to me. Why are we not bringing leading architects, student engineers, disabled advocates to come together and go, okay, well, what's the most tangible, practical way to do this? Mm. To be literally saying to people in 2019, you get to enter and you don't. It, it's a symbol bigger than that because I think it's a symbol echoed within the trans communities because if we're already saying to marginalized people that we want to further marginalize them within public spaces, what results are we expecting? So I think if we could think more broadly about that, the other thing that I would ask people to do is to make sure that you're following and supporting disabled advocates across social media, become familiar with the language and terms, please remove vocabulary that is offensive, even if you don't as of yet know it's offensive, for example, midget, not cool, um, take that out of your vocabulary and add in the words that are, and just being cognizant of it, asking questions like that, you know, who, what voices have we not heard before? What about this building? What can we do? What can we be accommodated for? If you're in a position where you're hiring people and you work in HR, we're so familiar with asking people, do you have any dietary requirements? Are you a vegan? Mm. We don't ever be like, and do you have any accessibility needs? Because we're like, oh, what about if we offend them? Mm. Yeah. Offend me all the way. <laughs> I would rather you ask and for me be able to say, actually what I would love is a footstool. Instead of yeah. this like, awkward tango where we're like mm, political correctness and I'm like just ask the question and I think if we could be a little bit bolder about embracing that discomfort yeah. it would make everything easier it's a very good answer um, okay I think it's time for some audience questions if you have any questions <laughs> if not I have more but I feel like you're gonna have lots of questions no uh, I just want to ask a question. I'm here with two of my fellow primary school teachers. Um, you know, we have you know girls and boys in our classroom and kids who identify as girls and kids who don't identify. Um, but you know, how do we support our boys and support them in finding their feminism and really just showing that you don't have to have some kind of gender identity, but actually that you know you can be whoever you want to be and mm -hmm. not feel judged or you know 
strange in our society. I would just love to hear your take on that. Thanks. Uh, can I start with your class library? Um, what books are in your class library? And I know that isn't often the, the, the teacher's sole decision, but making sure there is much as, as much material as possible in which those children can access non-gender conforming or stereotype roles. So making sure even the posters on your wall, if you're teaching firefighters, make sure there's different types of people with different color skin, with different abilities. And if you want uh, references, send me an email and I'll send you some books and ideas. I think that uh, a lot of young women and people my age, they think that, do you say that they're feminists openly is like unattractive to males, boys especially, and I just want to know what do you think about that and what we can do to open up, uh, open up the conversation just a myth that you are a feminist? I mean, we're all feminists and we're, we're really all three of us are very, very attractive. We're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> See, yeah. confidence, arrogance. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's one thing. No, I, I think that is a huge issue, and that was, you know, part of why I never identified as a feminist. I was like, I shave my legs, I wear makeup, I wear pink, I'm not a feminist. That's disgusting. Um, and unfortunately, it kind of wasn't until I needed feminism that mm. I started identifying as that. And I think sometimes it really is like a power in numbers thing, you know, it's, it's like the I'm Spartacus thing, like, I'm a feminist, I'm a feminist, like, if you, if all the girls that the boys find attractive say they're feminists, suddenly being a feminist is attractive, you know, it's just about shifting perceptions, and that can be really scary, and it can be really scary to be the first one to do that, but I also think, you know, I don't have a boyfriend, and I've never had a boyfriend, and part of that is because of that issue, but I'm not going to go out with someone that doesn't think that feminists are attractive. <laughs> so I'm just going to wait. Um, yeah. we, can, we can live together when we're old with our cats. And <laughs> what do you guys think? I, do I, I didn't actually hear what you said. <laughs> so what, what do you do about boys who think feminists are unattractive? Or oh, about girls who feel like they don't want to... feminism is unattractive. Or girls who feel they don't want to identify as feminists so it's unattractive. So we did a talk earlier with, like, 17-year-olds, and um, one of the boys actually asked that question um, pretty much, which was quite cool. And I found that, like, whenever I try and talk about it, I get really defensive and quite angry and, like, you should just be a feminist. <laughs> That's it. Um, and I think what's important and what I'm realising through, you know, discussing it with the men in my life is that it can sometimes feel like an attack if it's just simply like, we should just all be feminists and that's it. If it's not explained to people, whether it's a boy or a girl, you, you, can, you can feel like you're being attacked. So I think one of the things that's important is to actually just like, chat to boys about it and go like, well, really, this is what it is. Get your stats out on your phone. <laughs> you can't argue then. That, is, that is really attractive. Honestly, the <laughs> stats will do it. That's like... She did it with some, one of our boys recently and he was like, crazy. Oh, right. Yeah, I think I am a feminist. <laughs> that's yeah. it. The, I suppose the final contribution, you know, if, if someone doesn't like you because you choose to believe and progress 
something like equality. After it's explained, Red bag. <laughs> I would be strongly of the opinion that you looked out. <laughs> Um, I think that's a kind of incredible way to end. Let's just all be single forever. Um, thank you so much to Sersha and Sinead for being incredible and exactly the kind of women I want to be when I grow up, if I ever grow up. Um, and thank you to you for being the most incredible fiery force of feminist energy and continuing to make this beautiful country a better place for women every single day. I hope you all had a good night and thank you for having us. Thank you for listening to the Feminist Don't Wear Pink podcast. I have been your host, Scarlett Curtis. This is a bit of activism for anyone that was interested in this podcast. It's been one year since the success of the Repeal the Eighth campaign in Ireland, and today it's time to send support and solidarity to Northern Ireland, where abortion remains illegal in almost every circumstance. It's time for this to be changed, and I would really encourage anyone who cares about this issue or enjoyed this episode to see what they can do in the fight for abortion rights. Amnesty UK are doing amazing things and you can also look at my Instagram at Curtis or my activist collective's Instagram at Pink Protest to see what you can do. The North is next and we need to fight together to make sure that women in Northern Ireland can have agency over their own body. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.